morning. Uh, good morning, church. Oh, good morning? Yeah. Okay, very good. Good to hear that you're here. And uh, welcome to you that are online. Uh, so good to be together again. I love, again, just love being together Sunday mornings. Uh, two weeks ago, I spoke in, uh, in, in our nurturing a culture of goodness, talking about people first. And in there, uh, at the beginning, I said, um, just to kind of cult- uh, cultivate that, uh, I would like to give $50 to anyone who brings a first-time guest to church, and, uh, and not for you to just pocket, but for you to take out your, your friend, your, your guest with you. Uh, take them out for lunch, and uh, I would like to buy lunch for you. I had an individual from out of town that week uh, stop me in the foyer after church. First time ever visiting our church. He's from Alberta. He said, I just happened to be here this uh, morning, and I was moved by that and motivated by that, and I felt like God wanted me to give you $50 to give to the fifth person that comes and brings a friend to church. So I've got 50 bucks, another 50 bucks in my pocket, just burning a hole in there. And I would like for us, and I'll hold on to this $250 until there's five people that uh, bring a guest and they want to take them out for lunch. Uh, So I hope the $250 isn't in my pocket for very long. So anyway, there's a challenge and encouragement to us this morning. WWJD. Anybody remember that or know those initials? WWJD. Yes, stands for What Would Jesus Do? Um, It was very popular when I was in high school, way back in the 1980s. And then in the early 90s, things began to be very uh, popular. Many people knew about What Would Jesus Do? Because it was popularized uh, through bracelets and some people had bumper stickers and there was Bible covers and there was t-shirts and there was all sorts of marketing tools with the initials WWJD. Anybody still wear one of those? Okay, that's kind of what I thought. All right, yeah. So what happened, you know, is that some people became a little bit cynical and sarcastic about it. But I want to draw our attention a little bit to that this morning. Today we're finishing up this series on nurturing a culture of goodness. And uh, we started it back in September. And what we've been talking about in this series was characteristics that were epitomized by Christ. If you wanted to see a good example of these characteristics, well, look to Christ. Because he was perfect in setting these examples for us. Today we want to talk about Christ-likeness. Becoming Christ-like in our life is a process. It's a lifelong journey. None of us have arrived in that, and so we are still on that journey in wanting to become more like Christ-like. And that's what we want to do as individuals. That's what we want to do as a church, to encourage that in one another's lives. What does Christ-likeness look like? Sometimes it can be easy to forget that the scriptures that we read, it really came out of a community of faith that struggled with that same question. What does Christ-likeness look like? In fact, those questions are as relevant to us today, to our situation today, that we find in uh, 2,000 years later, and it speaks volumes to the things that we had in common with our brothers and sisters 2,000 years ago. And it speaks also to the continuing and eternal message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does it look like to be more Christ-like? As we bring this series to a close, 
I can think of no passage that has as much power in it in considering that question than Philippians chapter 2. If you have your Bibles with you, if you have your Bible on your phone, I encourage you to turn there. Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Paul's writing these words and he says this. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, and actually the Greek construct of this, uh, the original audience, they would have read this or heard this to actually be a matter of fact. And so they would read it like this, since there is, or therefore because there is encouragement from being united with Christ, because there is comfort from His love, because there is common sharing in the Spirit, because there is tenderness and compassion. And then he goes on to say this, because of that, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. But then listen to this, and this is where I want to drive, drive it home today. Listen to this. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. See, there's our, our, our standard. What would Jesus do? Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You know, when I read, the, read this text again this week, and I was studying this text, I thought, you know, I, I feel a sense of overwhelmed, the uh, feeling overwhelmed, feeling like it's a huge responsibility to try to explain this text a little bit. And so what I would pray this week and what I'm praying today and what I would encourage you as you read the text again and again and again, that you would invite the Spirit of God to impress upon your heart the deep meaning of these verses, far deeper than what I will even say this morning. These verses talks about the incarnation, and that's a Latin word that means in the flesh, that Jesus is God in the flesh. Uh, that's the main point of the Christian religion, the Christian faith, is that God, that Jesus is God in the flesh, that God became man. And as you follow the text here in Philippians chapter 2, we find out that it's almost like steps. Christ coming down from heaven to earth, and then he's given a series of steps. Making it clear so that we would understand what Christ Jesus has done for us. Yes, this text is theological in, in that it's about the incarnation, again, about God coming in the flesh. But that's not Paul's main purpose. That's not his main point in this passage. He's not here to make a theological point. 
uh, to identify Jesus' saving work on the cross. But rather, Paul is driving at, here's the purpose that he's striving at in this passage, is to identify Christ as the model. Uh, identify Christ, his humility, to identify his self-giving, his self-denying, humble love. And so we ask ourselves the question, what does it look like to become more Christ-like? Verse 5, we read this, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset, or if you live, read from the NLT, it says, have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. What does the mindset and attitude of Christ Jesus look like? Well, Paul began in verse 3. He said this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. You see, in order for unity to be a reality in the church, nothing we do can be selfish. Nothing we do can be about our own egos. Nothing can be about our own preferences, about our own comfort. But we seek the good of the others. We should be marked by humility, Paul says being concerned about the interests of each other. And Paul says, Christ is our example. Christ is our illustration of what this looks like. Christ is the pattern with which we are to follow. And so if we want to nurture a culture of Christ-likeness, then our humility should copy as much of the behavior of Christ Jesus our humility should copy as much as within our power the condescension of the Son of God. You see, sometimes we may find in our life, we may, maybe we would say these things just to ourselves. We probably wouldn't say this out loud too often. But maybe we sometimes feel like a task is below us. Um, maybe a, a certain task I would have to humble myself too much to do. I would have to humble myself too far in order to do. I'd have to sacrifice too much to go that far. I'd have to give up too much of what's so important to me to get to that level. But I wonder if maybe we don't understand the degree to which Christ came for us. Maybe we have no idea about the sacrifice that Christ made for us. To show us how powerful, to show us how profound this truth is, Paul shows us this step-by-step descent of Christ's humility. Starting in verse 6, he says this about Christ, who being in the very nature God. That is to say, Jesus is God. Okay? He is emphasizing Jesus' starting point. He is God. This is where Christ has come from. Jesus being fully God, that is, that he is, that's his nature. Jesus' nature, he is God. That nature cannot be changed. That is who he is. He is God. He always has been God, and he always will be God. He is the creator. He is the exact representation of, of God. He is the one who is head over all. 
In him, all things hold together in heaven and on earth. He is the visible and the invisible. Or over, sorry, the visible and the invisible. All things were created by Christ and for Christ. They were created through him and for him. He is God. You want to read that? Look at John chapter 1. Look at Colossians chapter 1. And look at Hebrews chapter 1. That's what those chapters tell us. And so Jesus starts from this high place. He is God. No, none of us in this room have ever held that position. That's where Christ comes from, right? A greater position than we have and we ever will have. That is where he comes from. And then Paul says this, that while he came from there, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. That first move that Christ made from here to here started in his mind. Other translations, like the New Living Translation says this, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. In the ESV it says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped see those words to cling to and to grasp they have this idea of hanging on to something so tightly that we wouldn't let go in other words Christ Jesus though God in human form he would not hang on so tightly to all that rightly belonged to him the incarnation it began with an unselfishness it began with his willingness to humble himself to let go of all of those things that were rightly his. And from there, Paul says, oh, he went down another step. Paul says in verse 7, rather, okay, instead of using all of this power that was his, rather than using that to his own advantage, to cling to it, to grasp to it, it says Christ made himself nothing. Again, other translations read, rather than he made himself nothing, is that he emptied himself. He intentionally emptied himself of those things that were rightly his because he is God. See, this is critical for us to understand. Jesus is the eternal God. He cannot not be God. That's not possible. He cannot not be God. That's his essence that's his nature and when he came in the flesh he did not become less than God he always was God always is God that didn't he didn't exchange his deity for humanity but he emptied himself of that he intentionally gave this up what did he empty himself of the first thing that we see is that he emptied himself of his heavenly glory the eternal Son of God, the creator of the universe, the all-knowing, everywhere present, the all-powerful God, set aside those characteristics to be confined in a body. When Jesus comes to the end of his time on earth, he prays to the Heavenly Father. We read these words in John chapter 17. He says this, 
I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. Jesus gave up his glory, his eternal, his heavenly glory. He hid that glory in a human flesh. His glory was still there, but it was hidden. We see a, 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 an example of this at the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17, verse 6. He demonstrates this glory, and he, in a sense, he almost gives his disciples a little bit of a sneak peek about how much glory, about his glory there. His three disciples, Peter, James, and John, they are with him, and, and, and he shows them his glory, and they fall on their faces as if dead because they're amazed at his glory. And he says to them, don't tell anyone what you've seen until after I come back to life, after I die and I'm resurrected. So Christ emptied himself of the glory the second thing that he gave up was his authority. He gave up his authority to the Father. In John chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus says he doesn't do anything of himself or by himself. But he only does what he sees his Father doing. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, we read that the Son, though he was, he learned obedience. Ever pondered that, that Jesus learned obedience? I mean, this is... Amazing, because in all of eternity, prior to him coming to earth, he never had to be, uh, never needed to be obedient because he was the authority. He was overall. He was the authority. But in the flesh, he had to learn obedience, just like we have to learn obedience as well. He learned obedience by submitting to his heavenly Father. Coming to earth, Christ Jesus emptied himself. He could have used his power, but he gave up his rights to do that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, we read these words, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. You see, his richness, it's not talking about material possessions here. That wasn't what Paul was talking about. He wasn't rich in the earthly sense. He was rich in that he had the heavenly glory. And he gave that up to come to earth to be poor because you and I are poor in the flesh. We have nothing that we can give to God to say, hey, look at us. We deserve this. We're poor. Christ in his richness came to be poor. So that we, in our poverty, in our poorness, could experience the wealth and the glory of heaven. Talk about a rags to riches story for us. Right? Christ came from riches to rags and then back to riches again. But there's a third thing, and I think this is probably even more important than all of that, is that he gave up his relationship with the Father. Matthew chapter 27. On the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
He gave up his relationship with his heavenly father to suffer under God's wrath for our sins. You see, that's what it means for Christ to have emptied himself for us. No one can do that. No, none of us in this room have come that far because none of us have had that heavenly glory that Christ had. None of us have had the divine authority that Christ has. None of us had that right relationship with God on our own. And yet Christ did that for us. He emptied himself of those things while remaining fully God. I mean, how low can you go? Paul says, oh, but Christ went further than that. By taking on the very nature of a servant. You see, in the incarnation, he became a servant to God. He took on the essential nature of a servant. He was essentially, in his nature, he was God, and yet he took on the nature of a servant. Luke twenty two twenty seven says this, For who is greater, this is Jesus speaking, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. That's our king, the one who serves. Matthew 20, 28, again, says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. I mean, how low can you go? Like a slave, Jesus owned nothing. I mean, have you thought about that? Jesus borrowed a place to be born. He borrowed a place to lay his head. He borrowed a boat to sit in so he could preach and he could teach others. He borrowed a colt so that he could ride in on his own coronation. He borrowed a room for Passover where he could celebrate communion with his disciples. He borrowed a tomb to be buried in. He came as a slave. He emptied himself of all of his glory. How low can he go? Paul says being made in human likeness. He became like one of us. Again, the Greek, the Greek term here means that he was given the essential attributes of humanity. Luke chapter 2, verse 52, we read these words that, and Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature, in favor with God and in favor with man. In Hebrews chapter 2, we read these words, since the children okay, have flesh and blood, that's us, he too shared in our humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. And then verse 17 and 18. For this reason he had to be made like fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted 
He is able to help those who are being tempted. You see, the incarnation, again, is not a switch. It's not a switch from deity to humanity. But rather, he is fully God and fully man. And Paul says, And being found in the appearance of man, having become human, he was recognized as a man. In fact, that's what many people thought he was. He was just a man. But he was God in the flesh. How low can you go? It's as if Paul says, oh no, Christ went even lower than that. It says he humbled himself. He went down further. I mean, Jesus, how low can you go, right? By becoming obedient to death. Jesus' submission to his heavenly father took him all the way to death because as John 1, 29 identifies him, he was the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Twice in Hebrews chapter 10, in verse 7 and verse 9, Jesus' words are recorded, and he says this, I have come to do your will, O God. What is God's will? God's will was that he would come to die for our sins. And Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 15, and then the verses following, Jesus says, I lay down my life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. You see, Christ came voluntarily. He came voluntarily to die for us. Paul says, even death on a cross. You see, he went even further, not just dying, but dying a death on the cross, even to death on a cross. It calls our attention to the shocking truth that Jesus went to the death on the cross which was the most humiliating, most ugly, most painful kind of death in human history. He did that for us. Why did he do that? We have to go back to verse 3. Let me paraphrase this. He did nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, he valued you and me above himself. That makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable. Not looking to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Our Father, God, our King, how low could you go? You know, when I look at that, to see how far he has come, how ugly our pride, how ugly our self-importance, how ugly our self-promotion, how ugly our entitlement, how ugly it is when I pout because I don't get my own way, how ugly it looks when compared to the humble sacrifice of our Savior King. No one could imagine a God who would do that for them. And this is the profound truth of the incarnation. Salvation is all by His mercy and all by His grace. And so church, as we nurture a culture of goodness 
in our lives. Let us be quick to be humble. Let us quick to humble ourselves before our mighty God. Bowing our knee to the name of Jesus. Acknowledging Jesus Christ as our Lord to the glory of our Father. Let us nurture a culture of goodness. A culture of Christ-likeness in our relationships with one another. Having the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word and how it cuts deeply. And yet it reminds us again of your incredible grace and your mercy. Heavenly Father, may we be humble. May we humble ourselves before you to live in such a way that our humility, that you would be on display in our lives. We ask this for ourselves. We ask that for all of those who call on your name, who call themselves by your name, Christian. May we display a humble servant heart as Christ did as well. Thank you, Jesus, for your example. We desire to model our lives after you. Help us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen.